0: Uh, Today we'll read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You can turn in your Bibles there or read on the screen behind me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I want to thank you so much. It's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning and to... um, have received this invitation to come and open up uh, God's Word with you. Um, we are going to look at John chapter 11, as Andrew said, and if you want to open your Bibles um, to that text, um, I just want to first express how grateful I am uh, for each of you, for your church, uh, for um, Chris uh, and his family. Um, You probably know this, but just in case you don't know, uh, good friends in ministry are, are a tremendous gift of God's grace. Uh, to us as pastors, and uh, your pastor, Chris, is a dear friend to me and um, a brother um, that encourages me, and uh, I'm so thankful for this church and uh, his ministry here, and so I just want you to know how, uh, what an honor it is. Um, I was with you uh, about four years ago at a previous location, and um, I also just want to encourage each and every one of you that um, deals with pipe and drape. Um, in the kingdom, there will be no more pipe and drape. And, uh, and so I, I know many of you rejoice at that fact. And uh, I come to you from City Church, Melissa, where in the Lord's kindness, uh, we've gotten rid of all but about five pipes and six drapes. Um, and so we're so thankful. But uh, what a joy to be uh, here again. Um, one of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis comes from Prince Caspian, where This uh, interaction between Lucy and Aslan, and you know Lucy from the story, or perhaps you don't. She's a young girl, and she comes to Aslan, and it says, she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Aslan replied, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me Bigger. I love this picture of what it means for us to grow in Christ. As we grow in our understanding of who Christ is, what he has done on our behalf, he grows bigger in our hearts and in our minds. Just a few weekends ago, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. And yet it seems, as a few weeks have now passed, and the busyness of life, and all of the preparations for summer, and all of the burdens come back on, it's easy for us to forget the resurrected Christ. It's easy for us to forget the power of what Jesus has done. And I can't possibly know, of course, the burdens that you might carry, and yet I know you carry them because I carry them. But I also know a Savior who has the power to sustain you and carry you through And so my prayer for us together this morning is that Christ would grow bigger in our hearts. And as he is elevated, we might be faithful and sustained through it. If we look at John chapter 11, I know many of you have grown up perhaps in the church and around the church and heard this story before. It's very likely that you'd be familiar of the raising of Lazarus. It's a very famous, rightfully so, story, one of the most powerful miracles that Jesus ever performed. And I am trusting and believing that as I've studied and prepared this message as it's done in my heart, that the Lord would use this text to remind us not simply of the power of Christ's love, which is real. That's why we read from Hebrews chapter 1. But also the depth of Jesus' love for you. How much Jesus Loves you. In my church, if they saw John chapter 11, 1 through 44, they'd get very nervous and they'd be pleading for a Cowboys game to cut me off. That's supposed to be funny, it's just to me. But I'm going to summarize for you the first few verses. I'm going to sort of make my way quickly down to verse 17. But in these first 16 verses of John chapter 11, essentially what happens is Jesus gets word that Lazarus, his beloved friend, it says this friend that he loved had become sick. Jesus is now two days' journey away from where he is, and he had come across, he had essentially fled from the region that Lazarus was residing in in order to flee persecution. The Pharisees, he had done some work there, and now they were coming to stone him. And so he fled across the Jordan River about two days' journey. But then word comes to him that Lazarus is ill. Jesus tells his friends, don't worry, the illness won't kill him. But, as it says in verse 4, the illness will be used to glorify God. Isn't that, by the way, what we love to hear when we are sick? But God will be glorified through it. Have no fear. God will use this for his glory. That's a true statement, but if we're honest, that's not what we want to hear when we're sick, is it? We want to hear that we're going to be healed. We want to hear that Jesus is coming quickly, not just be well through this all. Jesus and God will be glorified. But Jesus does wait these two days after hearing about Lazarus being ill, and then he decides to come after these two days nothing says I love you by the way like waiting two days to come to visit so after a couple days Jesus tells his disciples okay it's now time to go see Lazarus and now after hearing this the disciples now become a little disgruntled as they often do the disciples are very much like us they're somewhat easily disgruntled people easily losing track of the purposes of what Jesus is doing and why he's doing what he's doing and so they say to themselves but we were just there, and they wanted to kill you, Jesus. I'm not sure we should go back across the river. They're probably going to want to kill you. Once again, Jesus reminds his disciples that he is sovereign over all these things, and he has a purpose. And he tells his disciples, we've got to go to Lazarus now because Lazarus is asleep. The disciples in that moment says, they think, oh, great, he's resting. Perhaps he's on his, the road to recovery. And then Jesus does what he often at least has to do to me. He probably doesn't have to do to you. You have Chris as your pastor. You're much wiser and more attentive and more attuned to the things of the Spirit. But he tells them plainly, which in my translation it says, no, fools, he's dead. Let me tell you plainly. Let me just use simple language. Lazarus is not alive anymore. He's not just asleep, resting. He's actually dead. He has to tell me so often. He just has to say, Ryan, look at this. Hear from me. So we pick up, as Jesus is now, on his way back to see Lazarus and his sisters in verse 17, if you'd like to follow along with me. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Jesus finally makes his way back on the road to go and see Lazarus. And it says there that in the first few verses that it had been four days essentially before, since Lazarus had died before Jesus would arrive back. We see just in that little context that John gives us about that four days that there's a purpose in what Jesus was doing. It, it sort of clues us in, although we'll get to the full purpose at the end of the story, And that he was trying to reveal himself to the people. See, all people believed in some sense, or many people did at least, that even those who had been dead, if they'd only been dead three days, the souls had not left the body. The pagans believed on the fourth day the soul left the body. And so he waited four days, intentionally, I believe, to illustrate his power over death even then. Martha says to Jesus upon this return, Lord, if you had just come sooner, you could have healed him. But I know you have a plan. I trust you, she says. In this statement from Martha as she meets Jesus, we see grief and resignation mixed with a little bit of faith. And I so often see myself, I I chose this text because I love this text. Because it's ministered to my soul many times. But I see myself because I find so often in life, and I don't know about you, but I've been in these situations where I've asked the Lord to do something, and He didn't answer my prayers like I'd hoped. Have you ever been praying and asking God to move or to do something in your life, and He doesn't seem to answer, or He answers in a way that is not in the way that you had hoped? You say to the Lord, I, I wish, Jesus, you would have answered me sooner. I wish you could have done it this way or that way. And then we resign ourselves because we're good Christians, right? But I trust you, Lord. You have a plan. I remember feeling this way a little over three years ago when my mother passed away. We prayed and we believed with full faith that the Lord could heal her. I would say to Jesus, "I, I wish you would have healed her. I cried out to Jesus, I wish, Lord, You had the power. Why didn't you heal my mom in the way I wanted you to heal her? But I trust you. Jesus, as Martha comes to him in this way, he asks her a question. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you ask these questions of? She says, yes, Lord, I do believe. Martha says to him, if you look at verse 23 and 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus then replies to that statement and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know who I am? Do you trust me? So often I find that I say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I know that you're the resurrection and the life. I know that your plans are perfect, that you will have your way in this life and the next, and that I can have hope in that. But right now, Jesus, I'm just having to muster up enough courage to trust you. My heart is broken, and I need your help even to trust you. And we see Martha's confusion even about Jesus' response, because as she says, yes, in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I do believe who you say you are. But still, she grieves. She grieves the circumstances of her life. She grieves the loss of her brother So often we forget just who Jesus is. We can forget the power that he holds. Now after this interaction between Martha and Jesus... And Jesus, striving to comfort Martha by reminding her who he is, not denying her grief, not saying that you don't need to feel bad, not saying that you shouldn't be upset, not saying that it's an act of lack of faith or anything, not questioning her at all, but ministering to her by reminding her who he is and the power that he has to sustain her. Then she goes and grabs her sister. After she had said this to Jesus, it says in verse 28, She went and called Mary and says, the teacher is calling for you. And when she heard this, Mary rose quickly and she went out and all of the Jews that were with her in the house, they went. And once again, Jesus is met with this question or this really plea from Mary's heart. She says to Jesus, Lord, in verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. By both of these statements by Mary and Martha, we see that they have no doubt about Jesus' power to heal. There's not a question in their minds. They say to Jesus, directly to his face, Jesus, you had the power to save our brother. You had the power to sustain his life. We know from other texts in scripture that that Jesus, all he would have had to do is just to not even say it, but to just think in some way his power's at work and Lazarus would have gotten up off his mat and been healed. And they have no doubts about the power of Christ. And I think so often, I believe in our Christian life, we are very similar to this. I hope that when you heard That text read from Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Your response to those statements about Jesus was yes and amen. All of that text is describing the power of Christ. This is the Jesus that we worship. He is the one who fulfilled all the words of the prophets and now even speaks a better word. He is the heir of all things, meaning that everything in the world is his. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Jesus is the one who created everything by him and for him. Everything was made. We read that in John 1 and Colossians 1. Everything is his. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the overflow of God's glory seen in the flesh. He is the one who upholds the universe by his power. We talk often in our church I say this all the time, and I just give this quote to you and use it freely. If Jesus didn't put the sun back up in the sky this morning, it wouldn't be there. And when Jesus decides that it's time for the moon to go up, he's the one who will put it up. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. This is the Jesus that we worship, and this is the Jesus that Mary and Martha cried out to. Lord, if you would have just said, been done something, our brother would not have died. He is the one who upholds the universe. He is the high priest who made final purification for sin. He was humiliated for us. His blood was shed. And he is the one who satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And we know this because it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. No more purification, no more atonement could or needed to be made because Jesus was the final payment for sin. This big, powerful, almighty Jesus is the Jesus that Mary and Martha cried out to and said, Lord, you could have done something. And as we hear that, my guess is that many of us have no problems denying it's not hard for us to have enough faith to believe that Jesus is that powerful, that he's that big. There's a reason that you're here. Now, I don't know you all, so you are all guests in my heart. But some of you are here just on the hand of a friend or because a neighbor invited you or a family member or a friend. But you came here and you trusted them enough, you believed enough, you had just enough faith that this big Jesus that your loved one worships is maybe has something for you. That's the power of Christ. And we don't so often struggle, I don't believe, to understand or to believe in the power of Jesus. It's because Mary and Martha fully grasped the power of Jesus that they were grieved that he didn't come sooner, that it didn't make sense to them. But while we don't struggle so often in understanding the power of Jesus' love, I do believe that we sometimes forget the depth of Jesus' love for us, the depth, how much Jesus loves you. I often ask friends when I meet with them, often in some sort of pastoral counseling or just to get together over a cup of coffee, has anyone told you lately how much Jesus loves you? Has anyone told you that Jesus does love you? Are you aware of the depth of that love? I don't think we can quite comprehend it. And I know why we can't quite comprehend that. Because I have a wife and three sons who can't comprehend my human love for them. Many of you understand what I'm saying. How do we impart how much we love our loved ones? Do they know how much we love them? My oldest son was home for a day. That's what happens when they get old. Sorry, parents. It's a sad situation. But he was home for a day yesterday, and we said goodbye to him. And as I always do when I say goodbye to my sons, I squeeze them as tightly as I possibly can. And it annoys the heck out of him, but I grab his head just like this. He's in a headlock, and I kiss his cheek, and it is, it's as tight as I possibly can because I'm trying to impart to him in some way, babe, I hope you know how much I love you. You are my cherished son. You are my wife. I love you. Well, Jesus is love for me, for you, for my wife, for my sons. He has a capacity to love that in human sense I do not have. This is how much, if we can begin to describe or understand, how much Jesus loves us. This is the depth of Christ's love. And it is a powerful love. And we see that. In Jesus' response to these friends, which is described more than one time in this text as friends that Jesus loved. It says he loved them. The, the, the friend whom he loved. Mary and Martha whom he loved. So Jesus Upon meeting them, after hearing this question from Mary, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. This is why I titled this sermon A Grieving Savior, which in some ways is an oxymoron, if you think about it. How can the Savior of the world grieve when he is sovereign over all the world? And all of that power that we see described about him in Hebrews chapter one, in Colossians one, in John One, and all over our Bibles, that power he is it's possible for him to grieve. And he does. And he grieves here. And it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He asked them in his grief, "Where have you laid him?" And they said to him, "Lord, come and see." And here in verse 35, the shortest verse in all of scripture, the verse that all of us as young Christians loved because we could go home and tell mom we memorized the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And as the onlookers see what Jesus is doing, his weeping there. They say, see how he loved him. Now They were right when they said, see how he loved him. But they didn't honestly, they didn't quite grasp exactly what was going on in Jesus' heart. See, I've always been confounded by this verse, Jesus wept. Yes, easy to memorize. Hard to understand. Why? Would the savior of the world weep? I think of it like this. Periodically my wife and I, a beautiful wife Laurel's here with me by the way, we'll be on our way somewhere and she will decide that it's time to stop off at Target uh, for some shopping, on our way somewhere and and, and the brothers in the room understand where I'm going with this, Um, inherently, we will be late to wherever we're going now. And yet she'll be like, you know, on, on the way after the stop, it's like there's frustration about our tardiness to whatever we were, the party we were headed to or getting to the event. And to me, I'm like, that doesn't make much sense because stopping at Target automatically means we're running late. Those two things go together. I don't know why we'd be upset about this. We, we should have been upset to not stop at Target, but no. And that's kind of how I think of this. Why would Jesus cry At the death of his friend. Remember, at the very beginning of this story, he first said that what was wrong with Lazarus wouldn't even kill him. It didn't lead to death, which seems to be strange. But again, in that, we get a clue that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It did lead to a physical death, at least momentarily. But Jesus had a plan for that. He had a purpose of how he's going to do that. He, he hears the sisters cry out that if they would have, he would have come sooner, and then he would have still been alive. And, and so why would Jesus weep when he understands and comprehends everything that he is doing and clearly has a purpose behind it? I'll give you three reasons, and you're finally thinking, okay, now is something I can write on that note sheet. First, it demonstrates Christ's humi- humanity. Yes, he is God. He is the God-man, fully human. And with all of the emotions that you and I have, Jesus had those same things. This is why later in that book of Hebrews that we read, the author would say that we have a high priest who's familiar with our sufferings. He understands everything that we have dealt with, and this weeping that we see Jesus do Shows that to us. It illustrates that we have a Savior. Yes, He is God, but He is man, and He is familiar with our weakness. He is human. Second, it demonstrates His great love for His friend and also for us. Jesus is moved, yes, by the circumstances, as we'll get to in a moment, but He's moved, deeply troubled. Notice when he illustrates that, when his friends are grieving, when his friends are weeping at the tomb, when they are grieving and they demonstrate that. And Jesus demonstrates his love for his friends as he grieves with them. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that he is just as grieved for you today as he was for those friends that we just read about as he walked on this earth. The scriptures say we have a high priest who intercedes for us. And even when we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to say it, when we're too weak to even move, Jesus is there. That's Hebrews 7. And just as he did with Lazarus, he does have a plan and a purpose. But isn't it comforting to know that we have a Savior who is grieved for us, who loves us, and that grief that he has for us demonstrates just how much he loves us. And third, it showed how much Jesus hated death. Jesus hated death. See, the Jews that were with Mary and Martha, they thought when they saw Jesus weeping, they only understood that he loved them, and that was true, that is true. But the real reason that Jesus was grieving, the real reason that Jesus wept is because he hated death. When we read wept, what we don't get in that word is the full context of all that is included in the original text, which is really better described by that deeply moved and deep in anguish. That is what Jesus felt. And he hated death. I want you to take every emotion Every anger, every bit of heartbreak, every indignation of something that has happened to you in your life. And I want you to ball that up into one emotion. And if you could possibly encapsulate all of that together in one moment, you might begin to grasp what Jesus felt emotionally in his soul for his friends and for all of creation as he saw what death had done. He was moved and grieved because death was reigning over his beloved creation that he was sovereign over. If we go back through this text, we see in verse 33, it says he was deeply moved by the grief of his friends. In verse 35, he weeps. And then again in verse 38, it says that he was deeply moved again when he arrives at Lazarus's tomb. Jesus wept, he was moved, he was grieved because he hated death. He hated what it had done to his creation I expect that many of you have had this experience where you've been working on this just amazing sermon. You've, you've written it out, you're down on page three or four. It is God's gift to sermons. Spurgeon would be inspired by your words, and then the screen goes dark, and you lose it all because you forgot to hit save. This masterpiece that you had written or crafted, gone in a second. This doesn't come close, by the way, that frustration that you might feel in that moment. doesn't come close to touching the emotions that Jesus felt as he saw the effects of sin and death on his beloved creation. He created all things, and all things were created for his glory, and now his glory was being marred by something that he despised. Death itself. This miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead would be the final miracle that Jesus would perform before he would go to the cross. Jesus deeply moved again in verse 38 came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of all the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, performing this final miracle before he would go to the cross. And the grief that he felt, the depth of his love for Jesus. Lazarus and for those friends was a depth of love that was for all people for all time. And it's what motivated him and what sent him to the cross. Because what he started there at the tomb when he said, Lazarus, come out. Death will not reign over you. I'm going to perform this for all people so that when I raise you from the dead, my father might be glorified. And then I'm going to go to the cross. And once and for all, I'm going to put death to death. So no longer will death reign over my creation. But I will call to myself a people who will be called by my name. and. They will live on this earth as dead people raised to life for the glory of God the Father for all eternity, forever and ever. Amen. This is what Jesus did. The depth of his love for you sent him to the cross. And we see that fully on display in this story of Lazarus as he's raised, raised from the dead. And quickly thereafter, all of the people Come against Jesus to kill him, to take him to the cross. What he started at this tomb of Lazarus set him on the trajectory. Do you remember Jesus' first miracle? And he says, woman, my time has not yet come. In a way, what he was saying here was, it is now time. No longer will I stand by and allow death to rule over my creation I will conquer it once and for all. My guess is, again, if you're here this morning, you might not doubt the power of Jesus' love for you, that he is powerful enough to do anything that you might need or ask. But it is possible that you might doubt just how much Jesus loves you. And by God's grace, I pray that somehow I might be a messenger to you Of his love that's not a love out of obligation Jesus loves you this I know for the Bible tells me so Jesus said in the beginning of this story that the illness that Lazarus had did not lead to death you and I however have an illness that does lead to death for the wages of sin is death but Christ conquering over that illness which leads to death, offer to us the free gift of God's grace because the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have one question to ask. Do we believe? Do we know the depth of Christ's love for us? Jesus says to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You shall never die. And if you believe this, yes, we will have troubles. We will suffer just as our Savior did. Our bodies will fail But because Jesus was raised to life, you and I will never die. Death no longer has reign over Christ's creation. These bodies, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. We will be with him forever. And that eternity is what we get the joy of living in right now because of how much Jesus loves us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the gift of your amazing love. What amazing thing to ponder that the sovereign of the universe, the one who created all is over all, sustains all, knows me and loves me. And I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that your love would be known in the hearts, souls, and minds of these dear saints. I pray that we would know not just the power that you have Lord Jesus that we would know yes the depth of your love for us in some miraculous way Jesus would you even now wrap your arms around every saint in this room would you pull them closely as I pull my son into my arms would you bless them Would they know, yes, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let your word remain. Let everything else fall. We pray these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.